Why do some people have more than others? How can you be happy in a world where scarcity is the very nature of existence? Hi, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. In this podcast, we are walking through Dante's masterwork, comedy passage by passage, and we have come toward the end of Canto 7 of Inferno. We are amongst the avaricious, the greedy, and the prodigal people who spend way too much money. I want to do something a little different to start. Usually, of course, I read you the passage, but I'm going to go all the way back. I know this may seem really, mm, I don't know, really elementary, but I'm going to go all the way back to line one of Canto 7. I'm going to read it all the way through this passage to line 96. I think it's really important that you hear this entire passage rather than just segments of it. So we're going to start with Plutus as he stands there as a guardian before this, the fourth ring of hell. Papi Satan, Papi Satan, Alepe. Plutus started in with a clucking voice, and my well-heeled sage, who knew all things, said this to me. Don't let your fear hurt you. No matter his power, he won't impede our way down this rock slab. He then turned to confront the puffy face and said, Shut up, cursed wolf. Let the rage inside you devour you. This trip to the depths is not without a cause. It was willed on high, where Michael made his vendetta against the prideful blitz. As sails billowed in the wind fall into a knotty mess when the mainmast gives way, so that cruel beast fell to the ground. In this way, we descended into the fourth pit observing more of the sorrowful rim that puts all the evil of the universe in a sack. Ah, God's justice, who could stock all this new torment and pain that I saw? And why does our guilt so ruinous? As a wave spilling over Charybdis crashes against another that it meets, so these souls did in their frantic dance. I saw more people here than at any point above on one side and another with great screams, shoving heavy weights with their chest. They smashed together, and as soon as that, they turned around, pushing their loads and hollering, why do you hold on to stuff? And why do you throw it out? In this way, each one traverses the miserable circle on either hand to the opposite point, hollering their shameful meter at each other, only to turn around when reaching that point and follow the half circle back around to the other jousting list. And I, feeling as if my heart had been run through, said, My master, please fill me in on who these people are. And were these all clerics, the tonsured ones on our left? And he to me, All here were so cross-eyed in their minds back in their original lives that no control governed their spending. They bellow out this stuff clearly when they come to the two points of the circle where their contrary guilt divides them. These were clerics who have no hairy caps on their heads, and popes, even cardinals, in whom avarice reached its highest achievement. And I, master, Among these last sorts, they ought to clearly recognize some who were fouled with this sin. And he to me, You're collecting empty thoughts. The lack of discernment that besmirched their lives has darkened their souls beyond recognition. They will come to their two collisions for eternity. These will be resurrected from their tombs with clenched fists. And these will rise with short hair, inappropriately tossing stuff out and storing it up have taken all of them out of the beautiful world 
and set them to this scrapping. I can't offer a nicer word for it. Now you see, son, what buffoonery comes to these because of fortune's goods, so much so that humans fight each other over them. All the gold that's below the moon or ever could be is not enough to give rest to one of these worn-out souls. My master, I said, now tell me further, this fortune that you just touched on for me, what is she with the world's beneficence clutched in her arms? And he to me, oh, crazy creatures, how great is the ignorance that makes you stumble. I wish you would quaff my thesis. That one whose wisdom transcends everything created the heavens and gave them their guides so that each part would shine in another part, distributing all the light equally. In just such a way, when it comes to the world's splendors, he ordained a general minister and leader to temporarily circulate all the world's empty beneficence from people to people and from one race to another beyond the interference of any human might so that one people rules and another withers away, all in accord with the judgment of this one who is hidden like a snake in the grass. Your knowledge is no match for hers. She foresees, judges, and pursues her reign as the other gods do theirs. There's no truce in her transformations. Necessity forces her to be fast, so pressing are those who come forward to have a turn. She's the one who always ends up put on a cross by those who should instead give her praise. They blame her unjustly and speak ill of her. But blessed is she, she doesn't hear a thing. She is happy with the other original creatures. She rotates her sphere and is lifted up in bliss. That's the whole passage. I wanted to get a running start into Virgil's long disquisition on the goddess fortune. And I wanted you to hear it in the long span of the canto, because I think if you'll just step back, it's stranger than you might expect. I want to say a couple things about this passage, but rather than reading it bit by bit, I'm going to say a couple mm, remarks about bits of this passage. And then I want to step away from it, and I want to look at it as a whole. Virgil brings up fortune. He brought it up in the last episode, the last passage, and the last episode of this podcast. And Dante the Pilgrim picks it up and says, tell me more about this fortune who you claim is controlling the world. And then Virgil sets into his thesis, his judgment, his disquisition on fortune. He calls God that one whose wisdom transcends everything. And we're familiar with this from Virgil, that he can't actually name God, that one whose wisdom transcends everything, created the heavens, okay, now we know who he's talking about, and gave them their guides, uh, we don't know what he's talking about, so that each part would shine in another part, distributing all the light equally. Two things. One, I told you last time that this canto is notorious for breaking the tercets, the three-line stanzas. This disquisition, they break over constantly. Those four lines, that one whose wisdom transcends everything, created the heavens, blah, 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 distributing all the light equally, is actually a four-line bit, breaking over a tercet. And this entire disquisition breaks over over the three-line bits in many more ways and much comp more complicated ways than anything yet in comedy has done. That may be important. In just such a way, Virgil says, when it comes to the world splendors, he ordained a general minister and leader to 
temporarily circulate all the world's empty beneficence. So the claim being made here is that the creator created the heavens. Think of the spheres spinning around the earth. He gave each sphere a guide, gave them their guides so that they can spin their spheres so that all the light which we can read as revelation, we can read it as actual light, we can read it as divine beneficence. All the light is distributed equally because all the spheres are spinning, each one by its guide. So he obtained a general minister and leader temporarily circulate all the world's empty beneficence, that is the goods, from people to people and from race to race, beyond the interference of any human might, so that one people rules, another woods away, all in accord with the judgment of this one who is hidden like a stake in the grass. So you don't see this one this goddess fortune who's about to be described you don't see her she's like a snake in the grass which mm, is a little bit negative and you should let that jump out at you and here she is spinning the wheel of fortune her great wheel and goods are being distributed people are gaining things and losing things this seems to be the answer for why avarice and prodigality are both wrong because they violate the principles of this guide of this sphere of the worldly goods your knowledge virgil says is no match for hers she foresees and judges and pursues her reign just as the other gods do theirs so virgil perceives these rulers over the spheres as gods there's no truce in her transformations necessity forces her to be fast so pressing are those who come forward to have a turn she's the one who is always put on a cross boy that you should really stop right there virgil just mentioned a cross he just mentioned that on which Jesus is crucified, but he's got fortune on the cross. This should give you pause because this is an extraordinarily strange statement in this deeply Christian poem. Now, of course, we can step back from it and say, here's the deal. Fortune spins her wheel. Goods are transferred from people to people and race to race, and nothing is ever equal. And you never know whether you're coming up on the wheel or going down on the wheel at any given moment. <laughs> Good grief. I'm recording this in the middle of the COVID pestilence, and it certainly feels like we're on the wheel of fortune right now. You never know who's coming up and who's going down. You never know. It's this kind of mm, general notion of how scarce controls human events and don't worry about it it's not in your power to change it because the goddess fortune is constantly circulating things you you know that this is really gonna make me very uncomfortable because this notion that some people are just poor and it's not their fault it's just the fortune wow talk about a cop out but okay forget that forget my politics forget all that that's totally unimportant the important part here for us in comedy is that virgil is a calling them gods b he's got her on a cross by these who should still give her praise they blame her unjustly and speak ill of her in other words people complain about their fates i was i was up i was somebody <laughs> i was the top of the heap i was great and now you know i can't even get uh, i don't even know like an actor i can't even get a part i can't even get a part in a movie i was a box office hit people blame her unjustly and speak ill of her <laughs> it's hard not to you fall down the wheel come on anyway but going on but blessed wow blessed is she wild phraseology there out of that pagan virgil 
Blessed is she, she doesn't hear a thing. She's happy with the other original creatures. These are the other ministers created over the spheres, the angels who reign over each of the spheres, over Saturn and Mars, and of course the sun is on a sphere, and the moon, the original creatures. And I remember I told you way back in line 41 that the avaricious are so besmirched by their sin that they don't look like what they look like, as it says in line 41, in their original lives. I told you that that would come back up it did right here the avaricious had an original life that is now they're changed from whereas she is part of the originary or primal creatures that govern the universe she rotates her sphere and is lifted up in bliss it's a little link that original that ties the avaricious who they used to be versus who they are now with this goddess fortune who is still the same okay that's through the passage, the Sermon on Fortune. Now let's just step back and look at it. If you were in a Dante seminar, you would right now be treated to a long lecture on Boethius, the late Christian classical philosophical Platonist Boethius, who in 524 Common Era wrote on the Consolation of Philosophy, or what is now just called the Consolation of Philosophy. This is perhaps the last great work of the classical age. Boethius is in prison. He's been put in prison for treachery, or for treacherous reasons, I should say. Um, he's been charged with treason. He is serving the Ostrogoth king Theodoric the Great. So the Roman Empire has collapsed. Various kingdoms have sprung up. The Ostrogoth kingdom is ruled on the Italian peninsula by Theodoric the Great. Boethius was a major statesman in this kingdom. Through treachery, he is accused of treason, thrown in prison, and eventually executed. During that year that he is in prison, he writes the book, The Consolation of Philosophy, asking two basic questions. How can evil exist in a world ruled by God? And how can happiness be found in this fickle world? The Consolation of Philosophy is a long conversation between a Boethius-type figure and Dame Philosophy. Dame Philosophy is the one who brings up this notion of the goddess fortune and her wheel that controls this world. And so, if you bemoan your fate now, know that previously you've been up or you're down now, but you may come up again later as the wheel spins from fortune. All right, what's all this about? Boethius is really a Platonist, who Plato, a follower of Plato, who is also a Christian. He's trying to preserve what he knows of the great Western thought in a Christianized world. Look, let's think about it this way. You've studied all your life hmm, certain great thinkers, Aristotle, Plato. Now a new wave of religious and spiritual insight has come along in the form of Christianity with a Messiah who says, I am the way, the truth, and the light. Well, what happened to Plato? And what happened to Aristotle? What happened to all that stuff I studied? How do I fit it in? I mean, surely that wasn't just a waste of time, was it? And so Boethius is trying, like many of these figures, many of the Neoplatonists of this late classical age, to balance all their classical training with Christian thought. 
The Consolation of Philosophy makes no mention of Christian doctrine. The point is that out of philosophy itself, even though Boethius is a Christian, out of philosophy itself, you could glean enough, you you could find enough meaning in philosophy itself, and then, as it were, Boethius doesn't say this, I'm putting it in his mouth, as it were, Christianity is the buttercream on the Genoese cake. It's the it's the it's the icing on the cake that's so great and delicious that pulls the cake over the top. But in the consolation of philosophy, the point is how what can you glean from philosophy that makes sense of this world? This on the consolation of philosophy, this Boethius text, is the foundational text of medieval thought. If you haven't ever read the consolation of philosophy from Boethius, do yourself a favor sometime and read it. It is almost impossible to understand the Middle Ages without having read Boethius's work. It becomes so fundamental to medieval thought. Listen, just in English, King Alfred translated it into Old English. Geoffrey Chaucer translated it into Middle English. And late in her life, Queen Elizabeth I translated parts of it, almost all of it, <laughs> translated it into Early Modern English. So, what's it doing in comedy? Well, the easy answer, if you're in a Dante seminar, is the Constellation of Philosophy is foundational text for medieval lit, so see, here it shows up in comedy. I find that an extraordinarily unsatisfying answer. It is the answer I have always been taught. It is the answer I see repeated in endless essays, and I find it extremely unsatisfying. It doesn't strike me that Dante, a poet of his stature, would just stick something in here because, well, it's important to medieval thought. First of all, he doesn't know he's a medieval. And secondly, we've been set up for this thematically throughout this canto, right? We've been set up for circularity from tonsures to our bird's eye view of the circle of hell to rolling boulders to <laughs> to the kind of wheel of fortune we've been moving here in circularity all along in this canto so it doesn't strike me that it's just stuck down here as as well here's a really important part of medieval philosophy step back from it just step back from the comedy for a second even if you know this passage step back from it you know that in this high Christian work of the comedy, for this bit to be set down here, that there is some whimsical goddess of fortune who spins a wheel, and this determines the fate, and this is why you shouldn't be greedy, and this is why you shouldn't spend too much money, because you never know whether you're going up the wheel or coming back down the other side. You should know that this feels weird here, and especially because... All the people in this circle are clerics and popes and cardinals. Shouldn't, th shouldn't it be the time in which we have a big passage out of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel? Shouldn't it be a time when we get the big lesson from Pope Gregory I? Or I don't know. Name it, some Christian figure. I realize there are no Christian figures in hell. But shouldn't Dante the poet step in here and offer us a Christian rationale? After all, these are all clerics. All clerics sitting here in this circle, in the circle of the avaricious, I assume there are some non-clerics here, but we're not shown any. We're shown all clerics, popes, and cardinals. So listen, 
This calls for a religious answer, not an answer about some goddess fortune who's been set spinning a wheel at whim over the fate of humanity. All right, having stepped back and having done all that, let me offer you four possible interpretive stances toward this sermon on fortune. This may seem a little bit confusing, but just let me have it. I believe it'll pay off <laughs> four different positions of interpretation for this. I think it'll pay off, but just bear with me and watch what happens as the interpretive stances change. First, you could say that this is all Virgilian misunderstanding. And I've set you up for this. I've told you that Virgil can't name God. We saw Virgil refer to the second coming of Christ as the coming of a hostile force or an inimical power or some kind of unbelievably bad thing coming at us that is the second coming of Christ. We saw him misinterpret that. And we could say, well, this is all in Virgil's mouth, so we should take it with a grain of salt. Because, you know, Virgil hasn't necessarily been a sure guide throughout. And furthermore, A, he uses words like cross, and he uses words like blessed, which are very strange for this goddess fortune, which are, are words used for the deity, not for the goddess fortune. And B, the tercets are all broken apart here. The poetry is not in nice three-line bits, which is that signaling us that there's something off here. And C, we never see the goddess fortune. We're going to ascend all the spheres. We will never lay eyes on this figure. So that Virgil says that the various angels are determined to run the spheres, we're going to see them. We're going to see them spinning their spheres up in the Paradiso. We don't ever see the goddess fortune. So what happened here? So is this all a Virgilian misunderstanding? Okay, that's one position. I don't think it's the right one, but it's one position. Two... Let's go back. Take the sermon at face value. After all, Virgil got it right earlier in the canto. He got it right about Michael, the archangel, fighting off the blitz of the demons. And he said something that I said was so shocking because he doesn't seem to know anything about the deity, but yet here he is saying something about Archangel Michael. It strikes me that Virgil's character is changing. And this is another way this canto is torqued. It's slightly twisted from what we've had before. Virgil has not understood anything about Christian theology, and suddenly he drops Michael on us in an entire canto that seems to be pushing, go back to the previous two episodes of this podcast, pushing toward cracks in the fabric of the comedy or exploring the cracks or cracking the comedy itself open. It strikes me that Virgil's character is changing a little bit underneath us and Virgil's attitudes, well, how about this? Dante the Poet's attitudes toward Virgil may be shifting, and we may be starting to see it, which is why maybe we shouldn't take this as a Virgilian misunderstanding since he got the Michael bit right. Okay, third possible stance. Maybe this is Virgilian 
understanding, but with very distinct limits. That is, just like Boethius. Boethius argues in Consolation of Philosophy without having any access, well, he does have access, but without, in the book, using any access to Christian thought. He just argues what philosophy, the great thinkers of Western philosophy, how they could console us in this very fickle world. So Virgil. Virgil without Christian thought. Virgil, a figure of limbo, is standing here explaining the world to us. So this is what you can get from classical lit. You can get this consolation. I realize this is no consolation to say, well, <laughs> too bad, too bad that the wheel just spins. Okay, admittedly, but that's my modern political stance. In the comedy, I think it's meant to be consoling. It's meant, especially from a poet who is running for his life in exile, that there, there are forces out of my control which set the world on its wheel, <laughs> set the world off its wheel. And this is the consoling bit that Virgil can offer from his non-Christian perspective in the same way that Boethius, where all this is coming from, is offering the consolations of philosophy itself. So therefore, Virgil is linked here to Boethius as both talking about what you can find consoling in a larger philosophical context, even if you don't believe in Christianity or know anything about it. Which brings up Virgil's statement in the exchange about Michael, the archangel, and Michael's vendetta. Vendetta is a human notion of justice, of vengeance. Someone stabbed my brother, I'll stab his brother. Perhaps Virgil's mention of Michael's vendetta stands in opposition to the poet's praise of God's justice just a few lines later. And maybe vendetta is a particularly worldly or non-theological notion of justice. <laughs> but we've got a lot more to say about that before we ever get to the end point. But maybe that's the whole point of Virgil using that loaded word vendetta. That is how he would see it as someone from an earthly perspective. Or a fourth opportunity or a fourth interpretive stance. Maybe, and I'll just play my card, this is the one I hold, maybe there's a progressive understanding of divinity, God, theology, the problem of evil over the course of comedy. And maybe this, the first sermon that we really get, this is the first big philosophical sermon in a poem that will be full of them by its end. Maybe this is the starting point. And over the course of comedy, there is a progressive understanding and deepening of thought. And this is where we begin. We begin with this notion of the goddess fortune and the wheel and the whimsical fates of the world and all that stuff. But this isn't the final answer. In fact, this is only the first step. God, the deity, is 93 cantos away from us. It's a long time before we get to God. Even Jesus is strangely absent. We are dozens of cantos away before in the Garden of Eden at the top of Mount Purgatory, we'll finally see an allegory that we can connect to Jesus. We can't even see the person 
or the second member of the Trinity himself, but we will see an allegory with him in it. We're a long way from God. And so maybe that's the point. This is the starting point in a long understanding of what the deity is, what theology is, what the concept of <laughs> at the center of the universe is. Now, to argue this, you're going to have to argue that Dante's got some kind of scheme worked out here, and he's been working this scheme out for a long time. Maybe so. Remember all the Jason references I've already told you about that run through? Maybe remember the Dove program that runs through comedy? I mean, these are evidences that there is a scheme running here, a grand scheme, a metaphoric scheme, and maybe there's a thematic scheme too. And our understanding is not that this is the final position, nor that this is truth per se, but rather this is the beginning of truth, the first sermon to try to explain the nature of good and evil in the world. And there will be many more of these, more and more of these disquisitions, theses, sermons, talks, <laughs> meditations as comedy moves forward. This is often read as some kind of statement about fortune itself, but what if it's not? What if truth is, how do I say this, on a dimmer switch in comedy? That is, you're now seeing the dimmer switch at its farthest, dimmest position, but the light has just been turned on. And over the course of comedy, the dimmer switch is going to get turned up by Dante the poet, until finally you can see it. But you can't see it now. So if that's the case, that means that the truth is situational to the passage in the progress of its revelation in comedy. Permit me to let Emily Dickinson have the say on this. Her poem, Tell All the Truth. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise as lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. So many people want to say, oh, well, this is Dante's understanding of what fate is. Here it is. Mm, you know what? I don't think so. A, it's in Virgil's voice. B, I'm a little bit unsettled by Virgil. See, the poetry's a little bit weird, the way it keeps breaking the tercets. D, Virgil's using words like cross and blessed, which don't really sound right in his mouth, nor about this goddess fortune. And finally, God is ultimately going to be the one in control, not some fortune whim. And so if the world is controlled by whim then why any judgment? Then what's right and wrong? And perhaps there's a secondary point. Perhaps there's an underneath point here that we can add a sub point to my fourth interpretive position. And that is maybe putting Boethius here at the beginning of the series of revelations about what is central to the universe. Maybe it's putting Boethius and the consolation of philosophy in his place. This is going to seem odd, but Maybe Dante the poet is putting Boethius mm, not in the primary place uh, the possible. Let me explain this for just a second. 
I remember when I went back and a while ago I explained about, oh, you know, I'm bemoaning my fate and I was an actor and I was on top and now I can't even get a part. Well, great. That's how Boethius is usually read. And that's what happens in the Constellation of Philosophy. The spin of the Wheel of Fortune is all about fate. In this canto, the spin of the Wheel of Fortune is about goods or, to use Virgil's words, all the world's empty beneficence. What had been previously about the fate of each individual up and down on the wheel in Boethian terms is here uh, limited, circumscribed, put into a box so that it's only about the goods of the world. So if this is a beginning of an interpretive stance toward what is central to the universe, it may be that Dante the poet is not exactly satisfied with Boethius's answer, and he may be letting him have the day, but only about goods, only about avaricious interests, only about greed, as it were, rather than about the fate of humanity. You got to start somewhere. This is where it starts. It's going to move and move and move to different places. That's why this passage is so shocking. Why it falls here. Why it falls after the avaricious. Why we've been told that there are so many popes sitting <laughs> right around us as Virgil is talking about this. Why? Because ultimately we're headed toward a very popish answer, a very Christian answer to what is at the center of the universe. But for right now... We're going to start somewhere. The dimmer switch has to be at its lowest bit, but we have to turn it on. And here we are with the goddess fortune spinning her wheel. It's a lot to say about this passage. It's often just presented as a grand statement of, well, this is how medievals thought about fate. You know what? I don't think so. Dante's smarter than that. The poet is much better prepared to answer the fundamental questions of life than simply to rehearse medieval theology in some way or to say, oh, I got this idea from the Constellation of Philosophy. I'm going to drop it into this passage. If that's the case, then the comedy's not structured very well. It's just kind of a loose amalgam of problems. I think the comedy is structured. I think the cracks right now are starting to become evident and Dante has to figure out a new way to get into the comedy itself. It's coming, but next time, the last bit of this Canto 7, that's on the next episode of Walking with Dante. So subscribe, like, love, do whatever you need to do. I would appreciate it. If you want to see this passage, it's on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. They go to the same place. You can drop comments there or follow me on Twitter. I have some grand conversations on Twitter with people about this podcast. You can hashtag at Walking with Dante or you can just follow me and I'll follow you right back. And then we can talk more about Dante's comedy and we can find out much more about what's up in this strange fracture canto on the next episode. <laughs>